Welcome back to the Leatherbound Podcast. As always, we are a podcast where we are trying to be better people by reading big books. It's an oh incur- no, well, no, no, Hunter, you can't do this it's every an, week. No, please. It's don't. an audio seminary on moral improvement <laughs> via literary masterpiece from the greatest authors, contemporary and historical. Oh dear God, I literally fell asleep. I Hunter, I took three separate naps. During just your description of our podcast, but now I'm well rested. And Is it typical excited. for you guys to send cocaine to your guests? Because otherwise, how do they make it to the introduction? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. And, Hunter, what's that? Uh, that's my cocaine salesman, uh, <laughs> connoisseur. <laughs> that's what people call well, it. Well, if you are listening, you probably noticed that isn't either hunter nor my voice that is right we are having our first guest on today we are ecstatic to welcome christopher carl of the carl pooling podcast chris how you doing man hello i am so good i um they do me a great service by inviting me over here to leatherbound and it wasn't so much an invitation as a relent to my high-pitched wailing and screaming at the fact that they were doing something without me. So I beat my fists up against the table and my head up against the wall and made such a ruckus that they decided it would be simpler just to have me on and get it over with. So uh, I so I think they inv- inadvertently are punishing me with the book choice this week. But anyhow, I'm really excited to be Chris, here. I love what you guys are doing, and I'm glad I get to be a part of it. Chris, I I wasn't planning on saying this, but I feel like now I have to. Uh, Chris is my brother to those that don't know. And uh, when I was but a wee lad, I loved to read when I was young. And I would get in my room and I'd grab my Grizzly Adams uh, adventure book and I would sit on my bed and I'd just start flipping through pages. And, you know, I'd be in my room for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, a little guy in like a Pooh Bear shirt would walk in and would go, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I'm reading, Chris. <laughs> and then this uh my brother would go well could we play in like a little while and i'd be like sure just give me like 15 minutes and i knew how to tell time so i knew when 15 <laughs> minutes would happen <laughs> christopher would uh leave the room for about five minutes come in back in lay in the middle of my bed and just scream into the <laughs> comforters play with me <laughs> and so I, I actually feel like it's, you know, it's just the older version of that. Well, so. I was a social child, and Hunter is what you might call a loser. And so I needed <laughs> the intercourse of, of another human spirit. And uh, I, I was a book burner as a child. I, Hunter? I won't lie. That's true. I, I, um, I would have burnt every book in your library because I was so bored all the time. Do you guys really think I'm just going to let you guys skip past the fact that Chris just said intercourse of another spirit while describing his child self? This We just got canceled. <laughs> There's now an E for explicit on our podcast. I, I don't know where this will be shown. Um, the podcast is going to go number one, two, three, five, because we're going to skip this week. Yeah, um, I'm sorry about that. Did they have NC-17 back in the 1700s? I don't know. Oh, sure. <laughs> who's offended by the word intercourse, but. <laughs> um, Chris, I actually thought you only came on the podcast for the cocaine, but it is kind of a great guest perk. You got to be honest. Like how many podcasts do that? Oh, yeah. I, I'm pretty disappointed in general at my koozie from how, th- how stuff works. <laughs> I, I'm... <laughs> 
much more uh i'm i'm enjoying the dime bag way more so thank yeah you people think joe rogan goes hard <laughs> um well guys today if you didn't notice from the title i don't know how we title these yet you will know we are actually talking about friedrich nietzsche's beyond good and evil i say it like that because who knows how to say nietzsche is it nietzsche is it nietzsche is it nietzsche no one knows but it's Every bit as complicated to say his name as it is to read his works. Hunter, I, I think this is absolutely the most difficult book we've read, which, as Chris rightly pointed out, is exactly why we sent it to him and had a blast all reading it together. Um, I'm going to do what I do best, Hunter, and summarize this book. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, yeah, please. So here's the, the main thrust of Nietzsche's argument goes something like this. People now suck... But they could suck less if they arm wrestled. I mean, it's it's technically not wrong. Um, I mean, Chris, you you did you did yeoman's work uh, this past <laughs> couple of weeks, and you powered through a hundred pages of wall to wall text, at least in my version of this book, which is no easy feat, and. There's literally just a section in the middle, which is just pithy aphorisms, which why is that there? Um, there's so much to absorb in this book. And every thought in there is just like something completely different. And if you are I'm pretentious enough to, you... to describe the things that you're writing as pithy aphorisms, get out. <laughs> we don't That's need fair. you on planet Earth anymore. <laughs> That's fair. Well, he was ha- but, happy but, to oblige. But I'm curious as to um, uh, your your thoughts on it, since I think you are the mo- the person most recently to deal with the book in its entirety. Sure. Let me take a whack at it. So Beyond Good and Evil is Nietzsche's magnum opus in a lot of ways. Um, he He's very fond of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he's very fond of Beyond Good and Evil. The difference between the two is I think Beyond Good and Evil is the best representation of his philosophy if you needed a one shot to understand Nietzsche, I think Beyond Good and Evil is yeah. the way to go. And so, um, so he might have been most proud of Thus Spoke, but I think this is the best explanation of where he's coming from. So, quick overview. Let's say the book starts out with, uh, basically, he does a diss track on every philosopher that's ever existed, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And his point in doing so is basically saying that philosophy very rarely uncovers truth or the basis reality of the world, what it usually uncovers is the dogma of the one who's giving the philosophy. Hmm. Then he juxtaposes that with this, this new form of philosophy that he is looking to introduce and hopes continues on after his death. And that's, that's what he calls the free spirit. Um, In other works, you might call it the Superman, but he's got this idea that there is a way to break out of, and now a necessity to break out of the old forms of doing philosophy and examining the world. The free spirit's going to carry us there. To explain this, he goes into a discussion about the shortcomings of democracy and religion, how these institutions, government and the church, used to make man strong and have ended up making man weak. And they made them weak because they enabled there to be enough success so that we could become comfortable when he sees that it's actually something primal and instinctual and 
beset with suffering that actually made man into the moral being that he was. So even though we might have been dumb under the teaching of the church in Nietzsche's opinion, we were better than we are without it. And he sees science and democracy and the modern church as these interlocutors who are removing that strength from man. Then he goes off on his little tirade about like his his Aesop's fables section, um, which is which is great. Don't get me wrong, and it's where it's we really get good. the uh, the very famous aphorism, which is uh, if you stare into the abyss long enough, then the abyss stares back into you. Um, so one of his most famous lines, other than "God is dead," comes from this work. Then he goes and he talks about the natural history of morals, and this is where he builds out his his foundation and his formula on why the instinctual and the primal gave rise to the morals that we experience now and he talks about the scholarship that's trying to reach back and grab onto something from the past that we lack now and he explains that there's the free spirit the the true philosopher and also the philosophical worker who's like a baser version because he's drawing this whole dichotomy between you can be morally strong and you can also be intelligent or stupid. And and it, his idea was that back in the old days, we were morally strong, but very stupid. And now we're, modern, yeah. st- we're intelligent, but very weak. And he sees the free spirit, the true philosopher as the one who can be both intelligent and strong in their morals. Uh, he gives through a list of some of what he thinks those morals are and then admits that he's also an ineffective communicator of them because he hates women, which was the most hilarious section of this book, <laughs> uh, one that I guess we won't talk it's to. He I talks still about remember the... texting Hunter at that part, <laughs> and there's another slightly racist part. <laughs> texting Hunter like, oh, hey, man. Yeah. Hey, please continue. Yeah, so so it's a very interesting part and actually kind of uncharacteristic touristically humble for Nietzsche to include it in the book kind of interesting then he goes and talks about nationalism because he he's trying to take everything that he said so far and apply it to the current state of Europe effectively and so he talks about how Europe truly does long to be whole and uh you know nationalism is an outcropping of democracy that's that's basically um run its course he foretells in this section the violence that is going to happen in russia Mm -hmm. in the in the coming century he also foretells the violence that will happen in germany by explaining the stupidity of anti-semitism which was incredibly prescient for a german to write at the time that nietzsche was alive and he ends with talking about what is noble which is where he lays out his path for for how the free spirit or the true philosopher or the superman is going to attain what what has been lost while holding on to the learning of the present now that God is dead effectively. And from that, he says, basically it's through solitude. It's through self-imposed struggle and responsibility that the free spirit will, will attain what is virtuous. And he ends with a quick poem about how he finds himself to be a free spirit. And Zarathustra is the only other free spirit that he can be friends with, who is also him. So it's kind of, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Goodness gracious. (laughs) That was exhausting. Uh, Let's all take a nap and call it a night. No, man, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for the wrap up that, Sure. There are not a lot of people who I've met who can be that concise uh, with Nietzsche because he is so incredibly convoluted. I hope and, it wasn't right. too long in the tooth. I, I blew out my my allotted time by like double. So sorry. 
Hey, hey, that's that, that's totally fine. It hopefully people are still listening, uh, I because that was fantastic. Um, and if you did get a little bit lost there, because Chris really did just cover most of the ground in the book, um, hang in with us because I I I know that was complicated. That was incredibly dense, just like Nietzsche is. Um, but just like we do every week, we're not going to do a book report. We're going to take just a few of those ideas. In our mind, the most culturally relevant ideas, the things that we need to be talking about right now. And we're going to dive into those a little bit. Um, so guys, let's let's do that. We've, just just as we always do, because we're good Christians, we have a three-point uh, three <laughs> outline to talk about. Because that's all Christians know It fills know up an hour. It. it has nothing to do with the number of points. <laughs> and we can't go okay? over because we have to get lunch after this. Yes, exactly. In the yeah, Southern Chris, Baptist you tradition. Eat weird times. Um, <laughs> so, point number one for the night. Hunter, I'd love for you to intro this. It's going to sound very weird, but point number one is called sure. the sublime abortion of man. Take it away, buddy. Sure. Um, just just real quick before I do that, I think, Christopher, I really liked your summary, summary of it. It brought back points to me that I remember reading when I, you know, back before uh, you remember all the anti-Semitism stuff um, that's kind of lost in the fog, so to speak. So I really appreciated that. Um, I, I also think the, 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 the thing I, I, you know, I, I think that it is, I think Nietzsche believes this Superman, this free spirit, so to speak, can actually find, discover what is beyond good and evil, right? What is beyond our paper thin morality, so to speak, and get us some, get us something that the church although useful in giving us morality, something that is more stable there. Like when he talks about atoms in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And how, who would have guessed that's how it operated. I think, I think he's after that idea. I think it's, I think it's exciting reading regardless if you buy his premise. I think it's just a very, very cool idea. Um, But with that being said, uh, and to your, your, your former point, um, Nietzsche raised a lot of problems with the, um, church and i don't mean the church body so to speak but the actual like organization itself and its effect upon man um and that goes to ben's point in this sublime abortion of man um so this is going to be a little bit of a lengthy process uh reading here but i think it gives people a really good idea into this uh direction that nietzsche was taking i think we can take it from here so to begin to reverse all estimates of value, that is, what they had to do, and to shatter the strong, to spoil great hopes, to cast suspicion on the delight and beauty, to break down everything autonomous, manly, conquering, and imperious, all instincts which are natural to the highest and most successful type of man, into uncertainty, distress of conscience, and self-destruction, forsooth, to invert all love of the earth and of supremacy over the earth into hatred of the earth and earthly things, that is the task the church imposed on itself and was obliged to impose until, according to its standard of value, unworldliness, unsensuousness, and higher man fused into one sentiment. If one could observe the strangely painful, equally coarse, and refined comedy of European Christianity with the derisive and impartial eye of an Epicurean god, I should think one would never cease marveling and laughing. Does it not actually seem that some single will has ruled over Europe for 18 centuries in order to make a sublime abortion of man? It's 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 a devastating Ooh. read. 
Um, because in some ways that's true and that's why it's devastating. Um, and you, you know, I'm going to make one comment here and then I'm going to throw it to you guys. Ben, as I was reading that, I was so, I'm just going to go back to this one point and I don't want us to necessarily dwell here because that's not the, the conversation tonight. Um, but over the earth into hatred of the earth and earthly things. And we know from reading Dostoevsky that the moment where Alyosha has this moment where he changes his life and he remembers it for the rest of mm-hmm. the rest of his life, he is filled with the love of the earth and he kisses it and weeps. And it's, it's just so beautiful to see Dostoevsky, um, get the better of Nietzsche literally with, I think before this book was written, I could be, I could be miscommunicating that, but I believe that's true. Anyway, um, this, this idea that the church was, um, ruining the best parts of man's spirit, so to speak, is something that Nietzsche brings up. But the part of that critique that's really true is that, um, or the part of that critique that's moral to some extent is Nietzsche also believed that the church gave man a moral backbone, um, that he saw science taking away. And so it's a complicated critique because he sees the problems with the church as well as he loves uh, the things the church has given. It. And Hunter, um, I think this would be a good place go to zoom out maybe a little bit. And yes, because I know the first time I heard the sublime abortion of man, it's like, what the heck does that mean? Right. And it comes mm-hmm. after a lengthy series of critiques on the church. So yes, very simply what the sublime, what he means by the sublime abortion of man is that due to the, negligence or deficiencies of the church they have done such a poor job at cultivating what they ought in man that man is suffocating that it is going to kill man what they have done that might be a way to think about just because we're going to throw around that term a lot moving forward that's that's kind of what Nietzsche is describing um Chris we we talked very briefly before we started the show about Nietzsche's critique on the church here do you think his critique is fair? And if so, why, why not? All that good stuff. So it's both fair and flawed. So the, yes. the thing that you got to remember about Nietzsche is Nietzsche does not believe in a higher power. Actually, Nietzsche believes that he is the higher power yep. in a certain sense. But the other point that you've got to hold on to is actually Nietzsche has a huge respect for the figure of Christ. He realizes what Christ is from a from a epistemological or even a iconographic level and that he is the ultimate ascendancy he he is i think nietzsche would put christ and zarathustra on the same playing field if you will and so mm-hmm. he feels mm-hmm. the same way about the church he both thinks that the church is is deeply flawed and is robbing from man his primal instinct that made him strong while simultaneously realizing that in an earlier age the church actually enabled the sacrifice that that embedded the struggle into man that made him strong so he's got this real back and forth relationship with the church and i think what he's getting to at the end of that passage hunter when he's talking about the sublime abortion of man i think he sees the church as a nevo- a necessary evolutionary step in man's relation to his circumstance and into his own his his own cognition. So I don't necessarily think that Nietzsche hates the church for the church's sake. I think he 
he sees the pros and cons in it, but he actually attributes the responsibility of the church to a higher power, to a higher calling, you know? So, yeah. So that morality belongs with the Superman. Yeah. So to speak. Right. Well, and that we're walking towards it and the church was a, a part of that development. Guys, so ben, I, agree. I think that I agree with every word you're saying right now, but there's so much ground that people who haven't read the book aren't going to be understanding that we're <laughs> okay. talking about right now. No doubt. So Chris, no doubt. What the heck are you talking about when you say that the church <laughs> made man strong? What does that mean? Could, could, could you just could you just ask that same question again, Ben? But end at what the heck and just <laughs> and just see what comes back. We'll take it out in post. That would be just as valid. I'm not gonna lie. There were so many times reading yeah. this book where I would I would just sit there with the book in my hands. I would set it on the seat of the couch next to me. Just stand up, take take a little lap around my tiny living room, and sit back down. Just hoping <laughs> that that helped. Um, no, but Chris, I I completely agree with you that. He thinks that the church has actually made man weaker. Um, but but what does, why has that happened? We, we read, Hunter read that fantastic giant paragraph about mm-hmm. it, it feels like people are being strangled by the church. And, and let's zoom in on what has the church done to strangle people. So, so. I'm going to I'm going to reference a, a piece of the book from the same chapter that comes earlier in the chapter that I really like. And the there's a pattern that Nietzsche lays out. It's a three-piece pattern. And he talks about primal people and their gods, how that evolved into the church and how it evolved into the modern the modern European church with this threefold test. And he said that the at first in the primal ages man sacrificed their children to God. So they gave up things that they loved in order to please a higher power. And he would argue and does argue in both chapter three and chapter one that this actually makes men strong. Like this actually, the the self-imposed friction provided an edge with which to sharpen man. And he sees it as self-imposed, right? Although it might, I, I would disagree with him on that point. And then his next piece is that man sacrificed himself. And so to God. And he thinks this is a great thing, is his argument, that that is kind of the highest attainment, if you will, of of a sharpening that can take place. So he says that those two things, actually, the church was used in the evolutionary journey of man to strengthen him, if that makes a little more sense. And I don't think a lot of people would disagree with that analysis, because step one is humans' unique ability to sacrifice things in the current for things in the future like that's that's all sacrificing your children is uh according to nietzsche right and then Mm -hmm. step two is you sacrifice yourself and and that's the equivalent of why does a man go to battle for his country when he knows that the probability is he will die because his community is better served through him sacrificing himself so now he's not getting any good for himself he's getting good for his whole family and his his nation and hopefully humanity as a whole so step one you built yourself up step two you've actually built up the people around you is is that a fair way to characterize that chris yeah i think so for sure all right Mm -hmm. right on so now that we know what nietzsche was critiquing in the church what is he 
or how has that killed man? So how I think has that, that committed this sublime abortion? I think for that you need step three. Hunter, what do you think? Um, by by step three, do you mean um, God is dead? Are, are you referring? Yeah, yeah. Which is fascinating um, because think, he doesn't actually say God is dead in this book, but he does. Yeah. Well, he he yeah he he says that uh, yeah not not in those words. Mm-hmm. Um. So s- step. Th- I think the way you get to step three then is something like this man in his um, sacrifice to himself, so to speak. Right. Um, Or God, however you want to word it, uh, became obsessed with telling the truth because that is something that God highly values metaphorical or literal idea. However you want to treat that Nietzsche would obviously treat in the metaphorical. Um, And that pursuit of truth led to the dismantling of the things that the religious texts claimed were true, right? right. Um, and that you don't necessarily need to buy into that argument. You can just take that as culturally that's true, right? If that's enough for you, so to speak. Um, and so when the pursuit of godliness, so to speak, or truthfulness uprooted the foundation that was holding the God and the church together, right? then you've then you've lost god so to speak um and i think i i think nietzsche was extremely happy that man had become able to solve problems that had no intuition in them whatsoever and find answers that proved real in the physical world and at the same time was terrified that 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 service had had destroyed god as well yeah. And I think well, because he was he was he was terrified of what men would do essentially. Well, because he saw it um, as the destruction of of that which made man moral, even if it was false. Right, exactly. And and so to finish the passage I was saying earlier, Hunter, I think you're exactly right. It's it is the search for truth that that led to the undermining of the metaphysical foundation of the morality that the church provided. He says first we sacrificed our children to to our god. Then we sacrificed ourselves to our God. And when we had nothing left to sacrifice, we sacrificed God himself. So Ben, that's where right. we get into this weakness, this rejection of what, what um, there was rejection of, of humanity, this rejection of the evolutionary thought process that goes through ourselves and through the church and through our politics, according to Nietzsche and, and other places as well. But we had, we had nothing left to sacrifice. So we gave up that thing, which had made us at least morally good, if not, in Nietzsche's opinion, shrouded in darkness. And so he saw this process of scientific learning and a move away from the, you know, anachronistic, archaic thinkings of God as a way to make men weak, if not right. So. And now the way forward is by, as Nietzsche would say, a new class of man who has to now rule over the rest of men. And and you've heard us throw the term around um, Superman or Ubermensch around <laughs> a, a few times. Um, yeah, w- when you have my color hair and are generally as pale and blue-eyed as I am, <laughs> never say anything German if you want people around you to feel safe. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um. Oh, darn, I just lost my place. Ubermensch, that's right. Oh, no, I said it again. Um, 
<laughs> in, in Nietzsche's world, those were going to be the people that were going to replace God, who not even were going to, ought to replace God. And we're going to talk about right. what that means in a little bit. But before we get to our third point ahead of schedule, my boys, um, do we have anything else to hit on point one before we move on to point two? Um, I, I, the only thing I want to say to that, and I think it's a point that you're starting to make, Chris, is I think um, Zarathustra, for people who don't know who that is, is essentially like Nietzsche's mythical imaginative prophet that is himself, yeah, so to speak. And I think, I think your analysis of that being akin to what he thinks Christ is uh, really tells you everything you need to know. Is that man, the, the the men capable of it with solitude, who can create, so to speak, from the from within themselves the imagined the the metaphorical prophets that can speak forward uh, new truth, right? Like that that was our path out. Yep. And yeah. you are you are really asking for a lot there. And what's interesting too is you are asking for a lot of things that are contrary to Christ. So I think we'll come, if we come back to that, that's great. But I think I wanted to get that idea. Out, yeah. So I think you're exactly right, Hunter. So, so to just sum up the conversation so far, and then maybe we can move to point two is something like yeah. the natural evolution of the thinking of men or, or a will that, that acts upon men led to this three-stage cycle in the church where eventually we sacrificed religion on the altar of fact, if you will, and and sacrificed God there themselves, mm. which made men morally weak. And that's the sublime abortion of man, which leads to the need for the ubermensch. Something like that. That's I think that's yeah. a fantastic way to wrap that up. Um and it's it's so important. Yeah. To, to Do you see the sublime abortion, Christopher, as step two or step three? Both. So I th okay. I think I can agree with that. I think it's like it's like both to some extent. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think it. I, I in my mind, I always read it as step two, but I hear what you're to saying. To clarify, maybe a little bit more. I think that I think that Nietzsche wants strong moral men, and he also wants men uh -huh. that are in touch with their their primal instinctual habits. So I think we lost. Yep. We lost. Mm our primal instinctualness at step two and we lost our morality in step three. So I think it's them right. kind of combined together that lead to the wow. sublime yeah. abortion. And why is it sublime? Right. I think it's sublime specifically because it leads it makes to the way for the Ubermensch. Yes. Yeah, I think so. But I, who I is Christ, right? Who too. is Christ according to Nietzsche? So yeah. that's like from an iconographic perspective, how much more sublime can you get? It's like he's thinking right. both way too lofty and way too low at the same time. Like, like it. this goes into the very book's title, Beyond Good and Evil. Nietzsche thinks that there is something beyond good and evil that humankind could attain. And to some degree, Christ would agree with that because Christ agrees with your perception and your idea of good and evil is so pathetically tiny. Like that's the famous Matthew 5 where people are mm -hmm. like, Jesus we're we're so morally upright and he's like oh really have you ever looked at a woman that's the same or looked at a woman lustfully that's the same as committing adultery so to some degree jesus does come down and say your moral code is pathetic and that's exactly what nietzsche is saying nietzsche is saying really church your moral code has been kind of pathetic 
there is something beyond your moral code. And what he didn't think to do is go a thousand foot deeper into the moral code. He, yeah. he Instead of going deeper in, he went further out and he got lost. And well, it's it's not just beyond the concept of good and evil. It's beyond what's beyond good and what's beyond evil. Like, I, I honestly think a better title for the book oh, is Beyond Good and Beyond Evil, right? <laughs> he wants to reach out in both directions instead of down, which is a really good analogy, I think, Ben. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's one of the things is Nietzsche. Nietzsche is not afraid of evil. And we'll we'll come to that. And I think it's I think it's important um, because it shows it shows where this critique at first goes wrong if you don't see it at its on its face, right? Um, so uh, the the next point to kind of touch on is uh, Nietzsche had some really interesting ideas on what actually moved man and what operated man, so to speak. This may feel a little bit like a right turn, but I think that I think it relates pretty well, and I think it's actually one of the more interesting ideas to bring into your own life because the minute you can start to see yourself as a thing that is acted upon as much as it, it acts right then i think you have a very very healthy way of understanding yourself and your emotions so to speak this is um, the trippiest so bit. well see i think that's i think that's trippy but i think people talk about like that themselves all the time which is like you get angry and you say something you, you don't mean, right? And then you come back to the person and say, I don't know what happened to me. That wasn't who I am. And it's like, uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> so like people talk about themselves in the most trippiest way possible and it don't even really register that it's happening. That's a great um, point. Dang. Yeah, I'm smart. Um, so <laughs> we're going to go. <laughs> so we're going to we're going to go to. Uh, uh, this right here. We're going to read two quotes uh, starting here. The will to truth, which is to tempt us to many a hazardous enterprise, the famous truthfulness of which all philosophers have hitherto spoken with respect. What questions has this will to truth not laid before us? What strange, perplexing, questionable questions? <laughs> that the Sphinx teaches us at last to ask questions ourselves. Who is it really that puts questions to us here? What really is this will to truth in us? And then we're going to flip a bit to another section further in. Uh, one more. He who ventures to answer these metaphys metaphysical questions at once by an appeal to a sort of intuitive perception, like the person who says, I think, and I know that this at least is true, actual, and certain, will encounter a smile and two notes of interrogation in a philosopher nowadays. Sir, the philosopher will perhaps give him to understand, it is improbable that you are not mistaken, but why should it be the truth? That I I that was one of those set the book down moments for me. It so in <laughs> case all of that Nietzsche has a really interesting cadence. So I kind of want to almost go back and revisit that. If I could mm. sum up what Hunter just read, I would sum it up as you have no reason to believe that you are the person who does the thinking. Mm -hmm. You you, mm -hmm. you say things like, I think, I believe. And you have no idea where the thoughts come from. There's a philosophy called solipsism. And it you've, you've heard of solipsism if you don't know the term. It's Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And Nietzsche essentially right. goes, you have to have a preconception of who I is. You have to know who you are and what you are and you also have to know what thinking is and it's not completely obvious 
where thoughts come from. He goes, sometimes you have thoughts and it seems like they just spring forth out of the air. You have no idea what thinking is. So that's, again, back to the title, Beyond Good and Evil. He's saying you have these small conceptions of what things are and we have to go beneath them. We have to go deeper. We have to go beyond. And he says, he says in that part where he's kind of, he's kind of debunking Descartes, he says, if you think, therefore you are, what you know at a minimum is that you think, and why can't the thing, the I, be a, a virtual represent, why can't that be a simulation run by the thinking? Or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like one, you can prove the existence of one, but not the yeah. not the two, which is a bizarre thing to, to think. But I mean, and there's a part of it that's very, really true. And then the hundred, I think one of those super interesting parts that you read is this this idea that you're not mistaken, but why does it? Why is it necessarily truth? And that's a whole right. different way of looking at truth, more as an more as an actor and less as a state and it's certainly a, a atypical way to how we'd usually constrain that concept. I I love the fact that you guys are picking up on this. I actually wanted to put this quote in, but I just didn't think it was we'd have the time. But there's this whole section that you guys are alluding to where he basically shows how our grammar forces us into that thought process of the actor making the action. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the I who does the thinking, so to speak. Right. And I think the thing that, uh Oh, um, so, and and so I think, uh, what is so interesting about that is he, he spins it just like you're saying. And he actually like says, well, why cannot the action be what is influencing the actor in our, in our, in our brains? And the answer is just like you've already laid out, Christopher is nobody knows. And I, that is, it's so one, I think that's just interesting because it shows how grammar influences you because you have to think in grammar, right? And then I think that that's an encouragement to think outside of grammar. And when you have a phrase that you can't express in your language, break the rules of your grammar to express the idea. I think that's a powerful idea. I think it actually can help you think deeper. Um, the other thing that I think that's really interesting on a more philosophical scale is that is almost creaking the door open to deconstructionalism. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, I and wanted it's, to come it's here. Not, it, okay, great. And it's not that, so to speak, but it is it is this very dangerous wink and a nod to what you, you will find when you go write uh or when you go read um writing and significance by Derrida. Right. Yeah. Um and and it's 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 very it's I, I don't think there's necessarily a way to read Nietzsche and say that he didn't open up these doors for postmodernist thinkers anyway. Hey, Hunter, let me say let me say one thing. Um before we move on to your your first point, which is less interesting, when I was living in France Thanks. and truly by <laughs> true, I'm sorry, more your second point was more interesting. I'm just gonna say about your first point about grammar. Um, when I was living sure. in France and was truly bilingual for you know speaking right. French every day, I would dream in French and I would think in French. And when you when I was thinking in a different language, I truly came up with different ideas. It was amazing to me as a monolinguist for the majority of my life how different it was to read and think and write in a different language because it it, words are little tools and you solve problems based on the availability of the tools that you have and when you have different tools you solve problems differently and it's truly uh it's truly a interesting thing to learn about 
yourself and your own thought process. And how, and, and then the reason Nietzsche talks about it here is how much control are you really in? Did you come right. up with English? Did you derive German or French or whatever language it is that you speak? Like from the get go, your thoughts are not your own in that they're influenced by endless eons that are before you. It's like, it's a really right. good point. And, and it's, it's one that can fill you with both pride and extreme humility simultaneously. Yeah. It, yes, that's great. If you know me, you know that I talk about Aristotle's golden mean all the time. I think it applies to what <laughs> Aristotle's golden mean. Never heard of it. Okay, <laughs> okay. Here we go. Okay, so Aristotle basically basically believed that every virtue is sandwiched between two vices, and I think that is partially the whole point of this podcast. Is Hunter and I have not been shy about the fact that we're Christians. And yet we don't want to only read Christian books that confirm what we already believed. But we also don't want to just read a bunch of stuff that we disagree and insult it. We want to walk a happy middle ground where we're going to read someone we agree with like Ravi Zacharias and agree with on a lot of things and say, hey, his, this book needed some work. And then we're going to read Nietzsche and say, hey, this is really fascinating stuff, but it is deeply flawed and here's why you shouldn't believe it it's we're trying to walk that golden mean and the language is another massive part of the book that i didn't think we'd get to tonight but i'm really glad we are where i think the golden mean conversation comes into play because are we limited by language absolutely chris i love that story that that is a really interesting idea i'm also a monolinguist which is now my new favorite diss to people in social <laughs> settings um oh, thou a monolinguist <laughs> Thou dost not even speak the Queen's English. <laughs> or Ixnay Pig Latin. I don't know. Um, but yeah, this is another area where you can sit in a very comfortable place and go, no, we have all we need to in language and never question that mm. foundation because that is much more mm. comfortable and that is a safe place to be. Or you can push to the golden mean and say, hey, actually, no, before I say golden mean, or you can push to the other vice, which is to make the postmodern mistake which is mm, since there mm -hmm. are so many different interpretations to Good. the words that we use we can mm -hmm. say nothing of meaning which uh, is another vice but it's the opposite side or you can try to meet in right. the middle and say no we are this is where christopher's go ahead sorry this is where christopher's tools analogy is so helpful absolutely mm -hmm. right because yes, you are constrained by the tools you're given, but that does not mean the tools are not effective at performing their function. Sure, yeah. Right. Shameless plug. Go. If you do know another language, when I like have my quiet time now, if I go to a part of the Bible that I've read a thousand times, um, I read it in French now and it's like super fulfilling. It's one of the most worthwhile things I've done as far as studying is studying in a different language. Okay. Shameless plug for, G for reading in a different when language. When Jesus was given the two perfectly medium rare salmon and five baguettes and he turned them into 5,000 <laughs> and Jesus looked at it and he said oh, oh, oh he's delicious oh, oh you're going to enjoy <laughs> why did you bring me these fish don't you know I only eat frog legs <laughs> you mange du poisson alright this, this show took a weird turn <laughs> well Stop. guys I think we we've crushed point two and you know what that means mm. 
Time for point four. No. Yes. Oh. Subsection okay. Postmodernism. No, I'm kidding, Hunter. <laughs> Let's talk about Nietzsche's, one of Nietzsche's most un, not ununderstood, but misunderstood ideas. It's it's incredibly confusing. I'm honestly a little bit confused about it and excited to ask you guys some some of your thoughts because it's it's fascinating to me. Uh, Hunter, what the heck right. is the will to power? Right. So, and let's start there. So, we kind of, to kind of put things in perspective, we started with this idea from Nietzsche that is um, the problems with the church, with man, and what the solution to fixing that problem. Right. That that's kind of where we began yeah. this podcast. the The next move was okay. Well, kind of sidestep, so to speak. You're, you're not in charge, possibly, right? That's what Nietzsche is kind of claiming, right? Or what's in charge could be really difficult. The will to power is the thing that Nietzsche thinks is, is in charge in man, specifically, right? And so this will to power is the, you could call it emotion, you could call it drive, you could call it will, right? That is actually going to drive the Superman to make the the get to the new moral plane uh where there's that gap now left by the church and so he explains this and it's it's a complicated idea um i think we're going to read one quote and end on the last one um but this this one gives a, a very excellent view of what that will actually looks like the question is ultimately whether we really recognize the will as operating whether we believe in the causality of will if we do so, and fundamentally our belief in this is just our belief in causality itself, we must make the attempt to posit hypothetically the causality of the will as the only causality. Will can naturally only operate on will and not on matter, not on nerves, for instance. In short, the hypothesis must be hazard whether will does not operate on will wherever effects are recognized and whether all mechanical action Inasmuch as power operates therein is not just the power of will, the effect of will. It's a crazy idea. Obviously, the first thing we have to talk about is your pronunciation of the word causality. <laughs> causality. Well, you, know. <laughs> you can't win them all, guys. <laughs> um, okay, so at least I don't say strength, right? Strength. Or woof. Oh, yeah. No need for this. Um, if we talk about spiders, I'm I'm deleting my portion of the audio. Um, Strangely, uh, um, so anyhow, let me. So let's go back a little bit before we go forward. Um, mm. The will to power, and this is what Nietzsche is laying out, and what Hunter just read. It's not just. It's the will that moves your will. It's the will that operates free will. It's the will that operates the will to truth. It's also. It enacts on the individual, as Nietzsche talks about sometimes, like like who really asks the questions that you ponder. But mm -hmm. it's also the mm -hmm. will that operates the church. He sees the mm -hmm. evolution of the church as the collective will to power of the human condition. And and that it's that which made us sacrifice our children and sacrifice ourselves and sacrifice God in an attempt to continue sacrificing because it had worked out so well for us up till now. He also sees it as the primal instinct. The will to power is effectively his explanation for Darwinism 
in both the biological, social, cultural, religious spheres. It's an amazing Mm. idea, and it's not totally wrong. Um, It's it's very useful as a tool for explaining behavior. And Mm -hmm. let me, like I always do, get to the very brass tacks of what the will to power is. Because I think when most people hear the expression will to power, they equate it with something along the lines of might makes right. Mm. I I think those are fairly Uh inseparable for most people, but I don't think that Nietzsche is saying might makes right per se. So guys, I'm going to throw this to both of you because honestly, I'm not sure I can do that great of a job answering it. This is the will to power is both something extremely obvious in his work, but it's also kind of elusive because of his definition of power that that's where I get lost a little bit. So guys, um, how, how does this different, differ from might makes right if, if you I, i'll take a stab at it first chris and then maybe you can jump on it uh where, where you think i've left holes um i like the fact that you took it to the darwinian level which nietzsche believed in evolution right and and all that stuff and he, that that was his basis for that and so we can interpret him in that lens to some extent to get a better idea of his view um you can you can you can imagine because you've seen it hundreds of times, right? The cheetah and the antelope, right, on the plains, uh, fighting for life and death, so to speak, right? And how many cheetahs have you, you seen? Th- hundreds of times. I watched the Discovery Planet. Oh, okay, okay. Discovery. It's Planet. like it's yeah. like twenty five minutes um, on Animal Planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you push that back through all the evolutionary processes that had to get those creatures into that moment, right? The driving force that led to those evolutions, that led to those changes that won in the environment, so to speak, is the will to power, is that guiding force that was like, I will live, right? And it's, and it's, it's that which has brought man to this point. Mm -hmm. It's, it's why Chris, you're making such an astute observation about the, the benefits to the church. The church up to this point in that evolutionary guise was able to pull out morality that worked, right? Regardless if it was right or wrong or based in a fact, right? Air quotes fact, right? And so at least from Nietzsche's perspective, he sees everything that has brought man to this point as useful, yeah. right? And I think that's why he, I think that's why you have this, um, that's why you have this trust in the will to power for what it has accomplished so far. And it could, he, he kind of makes this, he kind of makes this idea where it's like, it could just all be environmentalism or adapting to your environment to some extent. But the hypothesis is because we see man as they are now, it could be more. It could be that that's actually where free will exists, so to speak. If Darwinism, um, Darwin, Darwinism or Darwinianism, I, so I think I said first incorrectly, is... <laughs> states Darwinianism is that nature is that which selects then the mm-hmm. will to power is that yep. which forces it to choose it collapses exactly. the possibilities of the selection into a a reality and it's like it's like uh, schrodinger's cat the possible yes. states are caused uh, by observation but the will to power opens the box i think that's to put what what Nietzsche is getting out here and and to just go to answer Ben's question the reason that that's different than might makes right is because that's the power of one's will 
not yeah. the will to power. Might makes right is the power of your will. The will to power yeah. is is the external epochal transitional force that acts upon man in the shadows. It it, it it's primal, not simply right. primitive. To to put it in the most crudest terms. It's the middle finger to nature that the bi- from the biological specimen, right? Yeah. It is, I will live and you will let me live. <laughs> right. It, and to some extent. Yeah. So. Yeah, that that's anyway. so does interesting that, to me. Did that help? No, yeah, that actually does help a lot. Um, okay. From that starting point, I struggle to see how, given Nietzsche's framework, he could condemn Hitler or Stalin. Because what they were doing was based off of a drive... Um, to survive and not just to survive but to perfect and to become better but here's Nietzsche and though Hit- and Hitler quite literally tried to make the ubermensch he cried he tried to create the master race but so but here's the thing did it work you got to remember that Nietzsche saw hundreds of years into the future at points and and truly did. looked at a time frame that was so much larger than his own it didn't work what they did and it didn't work what the church did and it didn't the crusades didn't work and the 1917 revolution in in russia didn't work and the decemberists didn't work and nietzsche was astute at saying you've you think you understand what i'm talking about but what you're doing won't work he knew that and that's why i think mm-hmm. he condemned anti-semitism in germany mm-hmm. and predated the the violence right. in russia and also took swings at religion is because he was very what he lacked in his metaphysical creativity he made up for in the fact that he was an astute observer of the nature of man Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah and i think that i think that goes into uh both politics and culture like he he understood this world probably better than anyone in in his age and probably anyone who's existed since then, except for possibly Dostoevsky, right? Um, and Dostoevsky obviously is the winner when it comes to the metaphysical creativity, but grounding that in reality, mm-hmm. um, which is in, it, it is insane. Um, but I, I I love that, and i I feel like I feel like I feel like this is the right thing to do. So I'm going to do it, and if I made a mistake, I apologize. But I think to put the to put the cherry on top of that idea and the problems there within, we we have to read this this last little piece from him. Will to power, we believe that severity, violence, slavery, danger in the street, and in the heart, secrecy, stoicism, tempter's art, and devilry of every kind, that everything wicked, terrible, tyrannical, predatory, and serpentine in man serves as well for the elevation of the human species as its opposite. We do not even say enough when we only say this. And in any case, we find ourselves here, both with our speech and our silence, at the other extreme of all modern ideology and gregarious desirability. And I think with that, you get the links that Nietzsche was willing to take that idea Mm. to. And that he saw everything that had gotten man to this point in in history as part of something that needed to be maintained so that the will to power could continue to bring forth truth, yep. so to speak. Um, and I think he, 
I think he just didn't realize that there is evil to some extent. And I think that's why the book is titled Beyond Good and Evil, because he thought that was more or less something that the church had placed wow. on people to yeah, some extent. That's fantastic. And I think I I think he I think he didn't really believe in it to some extent. Um and I I it's so strange to see someone who could so easily see it and who had such a terrible time dealing with it to some extent in his philosophy and and making a path out of it. You know, he never really puts into clear words how the Superman does necessarily achieve um, the new world. And that's mainly because he didn't know, right? That was kind of his philosophy is like this would be the task of him and other philosophers into the future to figure this out. But it kind of shows you the problem yep. is if you don't have someone to answer those questions, you're stuck with evil and evil will kill millions of people in the future. Right. And so, and anyway, this is, this is the, my main disagreement, my main critique of Nietzsche. And I think where Nietzsche truly failed is because he, and he's a calamity of both his intelligence and his time period. He lived at a time when we were learning so many things so quickly that it was very difficult yes. to, to see that there would be anything that we didn't know in 20 years. And people fall into this anachronistic trap all the time. Mm, that's a great Nietzsche point. also did. He lacked creativity. He saw the rate at which we were learning and assumed that all things would be learned. That's why the Superman would have been sufficient. However, what what we've learned subsequently and what we will forget again is that when we think that we are mastering the universe, when we think that we are mastering and undermining the metaphysical, there is a lag between that and the next questions. And the truest thing that we've learned since enlightenment and since the scientific revolution of the 18th 1800s in Europe is not more answers, but how vast the incredible body of questions there are that exist to be answered. What we what we should take away from it is our own mm. smallness, our own impossibility in front of the vastness of the universe. And instead of, of digging into that, Nietzsche said, well, we'll just know everything that we need to know. But and, and that's where he was able to do away with God. He thought that the mastery of the universe that we were experiencing disassociated us from an, for our need for a true creator, a true superpower, when what we've really discovered is that the vastness and the mystery that is the creator goes way deeper than any of us could have ever expected. And that will never stop being true. That will never stop being true, no matter how much we learn. I, I love that, Chris, because it goes to the heart of what this first season on this podcast is about, right? Is that it's better to be righteous than right. And the reason for that is because you will never know anything. And so you can never be 100% right. You will always be lacking. And before you know it, you know, in, in 200 years, right, or 300 years, they're going to build the next computer. They're going to get to the planets outside our solar system, right? Like, and you're not going to be, you, you, your, your model of the world doesn't take that into account. So it's impossible. Give up, right? And there's 500 other ways to prove that point out. And that's why you need revelation. You have to have revelation. And that revelation can come to you from God. And you can love the entire world. And it's possible. And you have no reason to believe in that except for revelation. 
um, and Jesus Christ. Woo! So, man, guys, that was awesome. Makes me think of Ecclesiastes. Solomon told us there's nothing new under the sun. And literally this morning I was reading in Ezekiel and God says, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. And if that doesn't encapsulate mm. Nietzsche's Ubermensch, I don't know what does. Um, wow, what mm. a killer one-two punch for you guys to wrap this up. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Guys, if you have not listened to Carl Pooling, you need to go listen to it. You're going to find the guy you already love, Hunter, co-hosting along with the new guy that you love, Chris. It's a podcast about everything that's going to get you fired. I, I tell them this all the time. I started listening to it because they're my cousins and I wanted to support them. And I kept listening because it's actually just a great show. Chris, uh, do you want to go ahead and plug your your socials? Oh, man, thank you so much. Seriously, the pleasure is all mine. And I do hope that your erudite and heady audience is uh, is willing to come listen to my more base musings <laughs> over at Carl Pooling with Hunter. Oh, yeah, we didn't do uh, Roadkill, did we? We didn't. <laughs> so, I, anyway, you can find I, me at... I have, oh, go ahead, Hunter. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say I love the fact that I get to have both personalities on each show. <laughs> it's it's quite nice to be able to dive into the, the... And we get deep in Carl Pooling, don't get me wrong, but I love the ability to cut up on that show. So anyway, keep going. For sure. You can find me at Chris X Carl on the socials. You can find the show Carl Pooling anywhere you get podcasts and um, also at carlpooling.com. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in. As always, we're not sure if you can find us on social media yet because we haven't released these episodes. You can find Hunter at Emotional Carl. You can find me absolutely nowhere because I don't know if I want you to find me yet. But please tune again. Tune in again to another episode of Leatherbound where we're going to discover how to be better people through reading big books. Hunter, I'm going to end the podcast before you can say your thing. Goodbye! It's an audio seminary on moral improvement via literary. <laughs> okay.